0: Would you take the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 20. As we study through the book of Acts, we are interested in um, what happened in the first century churches. And God has given us this record. And as I mentioned throughout this series, it is not ev- the book of Acts is not everything that happened in the first century churches. But it is everything that God wants us to know happened. And so therefore there is some importance in what we read as we study. And we ought to ask ourselves if we have, which is the only record of, uh, I guess, church history that is divine and inspired. uh, That we ought to learn from it and see as a church how we can be more like those first century churches. And so although we live in the 21st century, we should be concerned with first century Christianity. And so we continue in our study in Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to give you a few uh, preliminary things before we read our text this morning, so you can remain seated for now. But remember here, I'm going to try to make some connections. Back in Acts chapter 20, while Paul was still in Ephesus, he sent out two men. If you go back in chapter 19 and verse 22, the Bible says, So he sent, Paul sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So we've already read, and I just mainly, uh, just touched on it last time, that he sent Timotheus and Erastus to, Asia, uh, to um, Macedonia. Now remember, in Asia Minor, the other side of the coast there would be present-day Greece, but you have both uh, Macedonia and Achaia, they're both on in Greece. It's referred to later as Greece. And so he sends Timothy there and Erastus. We read in uh, chapter 29 of um, ch- uh, verse 29 of chapter 19. When they were in the city, the Bible says, The whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, They rushed with one accord into the theater. So, so far we read about uh, Timotheus and Erastus. Paul sent them to Macedonia to check on the churches. With Timothy, Paul's going to send Timothy with the letter to Corinth. We know that later when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll go there in just a moment. Then we read of Paul's uh, co-laborers, namely Gaius and Aristarchus, who were taken by the mob in Ephesus. And now we come to chapter 20 and we read in verse 4 some other companions of Paul, in chapter 20, verse 4, we read of Sopater, of Berea, we read of Aristarchus, of Thessalonica, uh, Secundus, and Gaius, and Timotheus, and Tychicus, and uh, 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 Trophimus. So if you want to pick some names for your children later, those are some good selections there. (laughs) But we read of all these men, and what we've learned over and over in the book of Acts, I know that you can divide the book of Acts in the first division We can look at the ministry of Peter. The second part of Acts focuses on the ministry of Paul. But the truth is there was a whole lot of people involved in the work of God than just Peter and Paul. Uh, Paul, in chapter 19, had sent Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. One of the reasons that he sent Timothy was to carry Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. So if you want to hold your place here, I want to touch on Uh, what uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 4. Again, I'm laying the groundwork here before we get to our passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, notice with me verse 17. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he says this, verse 17 of chapter 4. For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So here Paul says, I've sent to you, Timothy, not only to help you, but also to deliver this letter to you. Now go to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Notice verse 10. Now, 1 Corinthians sixteen ten. Now, if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he, that's Timotheus, worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. I, I thought, I'm thinking about those words. He worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. Uh, With those things in mind, as you go back to Acts chapter 20, I would like to preach this morning on working the work of the Lord also. Working the work of the Lord also. If you stand with me, we're going to begin here reading in Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. We'll read down to verse 5. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. If you stand with me. Out of reverence and respect for the Word of God, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And the Word of God says, And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, which would include Macedonia and Achaia. And there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. Now, I want us to see here that there was not only Paul, but there was a bunch of other faithful ministers who worked the work of the Lord also. It was not just Paul. There's a lot of people involved in the work of God, and I want us to pray this morning as we... Uh, consider this message. I want us to examine this ministry and what it means to minister to the Lord and so that we might also be faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for this record that we have. Lord, please instruct us from your word uh, that we might learn to work the work of the Lord also. Not to see that there are certain people who work the work of the Lord, but we others stand on the sideline and observe. May we all see the great need for more labors and what it entails to work the work of the Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we've seen here in Acts chapter 19 and 20 that Paul has been spending a great amount of time in Ephesus. And I'm saying great amount of time which is compared to the time that he had spent in many of the other cities that he had ministered to. Here he, uh, two years spent teaching in the school of one Tyrannius, and we know that he was at least three years in Ephesus ministering there. We know that uh, Paul would write one of his epistles, and he says that God really opened a great door in Ephesus for him to be able to stay there and to have a great ministry in Ephesus. Uh, But now we read, as we begin in chapter twenty. After the uproar was ceased, and so we read just what happened last week, uh, that uh, remember, Demetrius was stirred up because evidently the preaching of the gospel had caused people's lives to change, and Demetrius thought that his business would be affected, that uh, they would lose some money and some business because evidently those who had believed the gospel were changed by the gospel and were no longer interested in idol worship. And we made the point that those who come to saving faith in Christ, their life changes. Uh, it just what, it's just what happens. We are new creatures in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so there's this mob that arises in the city. Uh, they grab a hold of Gaius and Aristarchus, and they evidently were going to do something that was not nice to them. But we know that uh, the uh, clerk, of uh, uh, the, he stepped in, and he, uh, if you would, dissipated the mob, but often as we find in the ministry of Paul, whenever there was a, a mob, often uh, Paul used that as an opportunity to go somewhere else and to, uh, not that he was afraid, we know Paul's not afraid. He's already been stoned to death and left for dead once outside of Lystra and then went, continued in his ministry. So Paul's not afraid, but he's looking at how God opens doors and closes doors and he feels that now is time to move on. And so after the uproar, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when we read here as we think about, and I'm thinking about in summary statement about the work of of the Lord, why do we have those details, those summary statements about the work of Paul? We're thinking about the work of the Lord and think about the other people who were involved who were also affected. And what we learn in verse 1 is that in the work of the Lord there are going to be both dissenters and disciples. If you notice in verse 1, we read first about the uproar in the city of Ephesus. We would refer to that as dissenters to the gospel. Those who stand against the gospel. Those who in Ephesus have been vehemently opposed to the gospel, who try to stir the people up against the gospel. And by the way, we found, found that all throughout the book of Acts. That when the people hear the gospel, it causes something in them. We talked about how unbelief produces hardness. Hardness uh, produces all kind of evil behavior. And so evidently the gospel had an impact on those who heard it. And so there are those who are dissenters. Uh, But then we read about the disciples in verse 1 as well. Although there was an uproar, Paul called unto him, notice, the disciples, and the word disciple is a specific term that has the idea of these are pupil, these are adherers, uh, followers, uh, ministers, those who are willing to not only believe in the gospel, but to receive the teaching that comes from the word of God. And notice, Paul, he embraces them. And, and I think that there is a, a contrast there as we think about the work of God. It involves really two things. There is going to be dissenters and there is going to be disciples. And by the way, as we serve the Lord, I think we all will find both of those aspects in our lives and our ministry. There are those there are those who are going to be dissenters who oppose the gospel, but then there's going to be disciples. So let me just affirm to you: as we study through the book of Acts, we understand that the dissenters are much much more in number than the disciples. Uh, everywhere Paul went, yes, there would be those who believe and those who would be converted and those who would become disciples of Christ. But there was a much greater number of dissenters. And often the reason why I say that is people, they come to the place when they look all uh, to, to all the group that opposes the gospel to those who are dissenters, and they become discouraged in the work of the Lord. And I want to encourage us today, because we're here in the 21st century, it doesn't seem that much has changed as far as the number is concerned between those who are dissenters and those who are disciples. But don't let that discourage you. It's always been the case. It's always been true. Uh, There's always been those who've opposed the gospel and they've always been those who have been louder. And the disciples often are those who we'd find they're just uh, just faithful, following, uh, receiving the teaching, and then going on to minister. And what we know about our flesh is this, is that we are often, we become compelled more by those who are dissenters than encouraged by those who are disciples. We tend to think on the negative. Well, look at, look at the world. Well, look at so-and-so. And look at the state of the churches. And look at all that's going on around us. And if we're not careful, we might become discouraged by the dissenters instead of focusing on the disciples. You see, it is our nature to, and the truth is the dissenters are always louder and they're more in number and they seem to be more convincing than the disciples. Often the disciples, they're just there and they're faithful and they're learning and, and they're going on to serve the Lord and they do so often quietly, unlike a mob that is in an uproar, that is loud. And so if we're not careful, we might become convinced by the mob to become silent. Can I encourage you to Look to the disciples. Be encouraged by those who are faithfully serving the Lord. Be encouraged by those who are uh, learning the word of God, who are growing in the faith, even though they may be less in number than the dissenters. And so we see here that in this work, there were both dissenters and disciples. But what we read in verse 2 and 3, notice, And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, and there are both three months... And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia, and there accompanied him into Asia. And so then we read of those who accompanied him. And so we see not only that in this work, there are both dissenters and disciples, but we also learn that in this work, there are both adversaries and allies. Notice verse 3. The Jews... now. When he goes, when he goes into Greece, notice there were Jews who abode three months. There abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. But then we read about his companions. So here again, the Bible says there were those who were his adversaries who laid in wait for him, and those who accompanied him on his journey. Now. The Jews laid in wait for him. The expression here "laid wait" means that they were basically plotting against Paul. Uh, they were. There was a conspiracy against Paul. Uh, we have already seen uh, such actions against him back in chapter nine. Turn with me back to chapter nine of the book of Acts. We've already. This is not anything new for Paul, but in Acts chapter nine, remember, the beginning of the chapter is uh, Paul's conversion and. Uh, Then we know that he began to preach in Damascus after his salvation. After that, he's going to try to join himself to the disciples in Jerusalem. But notice in verse 23 of Acts 9. Now this is uh, not very long after Paul's conversion. He is a new believer. But notice verse 23. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Paul. But they're they're laying a was known of Saul. Now, Saul is Paul. Obviously, that was his name, but then he got saved and his name changed. And so they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And so notice here, we've already seen that. There's already been conspiracy against Paul. Evidently, Paul became aware of it and he slipped away. The disciples helped him get away. And here we find the same thing here. The Jews are laying in wait. They are his adversaries. They are conspiring against Paul. They are there to thwart the work of God, to get in the way of the work of God. And uh, we know here that there are adversaries in the work of God. By the way, Paul would write about Ephesus and he says that there's a great and effectual door open, but there are many Adversaries. So there's both adversaries, but also there are allies. (laughs) It's interesting that we find uh, both uh, dissenters and disciples, and then we find uh, adversaries laying in wait, but then we find men who accompany Paul on his work. It seems that our text indicates that Paul had a plan to sail into Syria. However, he, came, he became aware of the plot against him, and therefore he decided to change his plan. Uh, notice the plot is seen when the Jews laid wait for him. The plan is he was about to sail into Syria. Well, evidently he changed his plan. Uh, and by the way, there's something here that, that helps us to understand something that often if we pray, uh, sometimes we pray for God to intervene, but we're not willing to do any, any, anything. In other words, what I'm saying is uh, the Lord allowed Paul to know the plot against him so that Paul could change his direction. He was not foolish to say, well, God will take care of me, so I'll go ahead and... No, he didn't do that. Now, later in Jerusalem, that's going to happen because he was warned that if he went to, um, to Jerusalem, that he would be imprisoned. And that would happen. Now, there's debate whether that was the will of God or not. Uh, I'm not going to question that. We'll get to it a little later. But the point is we see the the plot, the plan, but then the change. Paul changed his plan. And so he purposed then to return to Macedonia. And so he changed his plan. Why? Because of the plot uh, that was laid against him. And so in the work of God, there are adversaries. uh, And by the way, our great adversary is the devil. He is actively walking about seeking he whom he may devour. And the idea of an adversary, as we find in the Bible, is do not give yourself over to your adversary. Be very careful. The Bible says we are not ignorant of his devices. We know how he works, and we must be careful. So we not only see some adversary, but we also see some allies. Uh, The Bible says in verse 4, "...and they accompanied him into Asia." And notice the names. Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Sympunus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. And so uh, let me give you a summary on all those men here because some of them we know more than others, but Sopater of Berea, we do not know much of him apart from the fact that he was from Berea. Now remember, we do know something about the Bereans though. Uh, The Bereans were a good example in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And so evidently he was from Berea and perhaps he was one of the men who believed there in Berea. And now he is accompanying Paul on his journey with them, a man who loves the word of God. Then we have Aristarchus, uh, uh, a Thessalonian. Now, he was a man who had just suffered. Remember, back in chapter 19, verse 29, he was one of the men that was taken by the mob in Ephesus. Uh, They were looking for Paul. They found uh, Gaius and Aristarchus. And so he had suffered at the hand of the mob. He would continue, however, to be faithful to the Lord. Even later, What we would see uh, with Paul in, in imprisonment. Now, remember, he was from, he was a Thessalonian, that means from Thessalonica. You remember what happened in Thessalonica? There was also, also an uproar in the city. Paul, based on what Acts 17 tells us, he was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. And then there was an uproar in the city. Remember, uh, the Jews, uh, they gathered some lewd fellows of the baser sort And they assaulted the house of Jason. And so no doubt he had been privy to those details. And so he knows that the service of God would mean opposition. Uh, He has been in the middle of it. And not just in Thessalonica, but also in Ephesus when the mob took him. Then we read of Secundus. He is also a Thessalonian. And so he is only mentioned here this one time in the scriptures. Although we do not know anything about him except that he is from Thessalonica... We see here that He is mentioned along other faithful men. You see, the great compliment that we will receive from the Lord is this, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what we're looking forward to hear. Now, I like that. Why? Because it's, the emphasis is on service and faithfulness. It's not on your greatness or the scope of your impact or the number of the people that you reach or the amount of money that you've raised for the Lord it's not a number but it's your service and your faithfulness and here evidently Secundus is mentioned among faithful men that's a, that's a good place to be then we read of Gaius of Derby now uh, there are several Gaiuses in the bible uh, you read in third john for example you read also when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Gaius. So there's a Gaius who's from Corinth as well. This Gaius here is from Derby. Now remember, Derby was the city that Paul had preached to on his first missionary journey. And so there are several men named Gaius in the scriptures. Now, Paul, in his first missionary journey, had ministered in Lystra and Derby. On his first missionary journey, but also on his second missionary journey, he had touched those cities again. It, it was on the first missionary journey that Paul had been stoned to death outside of Lystra. Now, remember, when he was raised from the dead, he went then to Derby. Remember that uh, Lystra and Derby was where Paul picked up Timothy. Paul had a good report. From the believers in Derby and Lystra those cities if you look at, them at were very close together and evidently there was a group of believers in both those cities and so uh, here we read that this Gaius of Derby again he would know that Paul had been stoned to death outside of Lystra and yet Paul had gotten up and went to Derby and continued to preach the gospel and then returned to Lystra on his way back on his second missionary journey he went back through uh, Derby and Lystra. What I'm I'm showing to you is these men know that service for God is going to mean sacrifice and could potentially mean death. Gaius has to be aware of that. He's from Derby. You see, Gaius was serving the Lord knowing full well what his service for God could cost him. Let me say, it doesn't always cost as it cost Paul. But there is always a cost. There is always a cause. Then we read about Timothy. Now we know much about Timothy. I've already mentioned Timothy. We've already spent some time in Acts chapter uh, on his second Paul's second missionary journey when he picked up Timothy out of Derby and Lystra. He had a good testimony of all the believers in Lystra and Derby. He was Paul's choice of servants to send when he wanted it, when Paul wanted to check on the churches. That's why when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he says, He worketh the work of the Lord. As I also do <laughs> that's a that's a great record to think that Paul could trust Timothy and send him Timothy would eventually become the pastor at Ephesus, be left by uh, Paul in ephesus so timothy has there's much to say about him again, this is not a message on Timothy, so I have to move on as much as I would like to spend time on him. But then we read about Tychicus of Asia. Uh, He is called, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, Tychicus is called a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. I like those. Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant, notice, in the Lord. See, it's all about the Lord. Are we beloved, are we faithful ministers, and are we servants of the Lord? Those elements seem to keep coming back. Service and faithfulness. Then we read of uh, uh, Trophimus. He was also of Asia. Um, Now, by the way, Tychicus, I didn't mention, but Tychicus was the one who delivered the epistles of Colossians and Ephesians. Uh, Luke, uh, wait, uh, Trophimus, uh, he was also of Asia. Uh, According to Acts 21-29, he was a Greek from Ephesus. And so we don't know much about him other than that. Now Luke is also mentioned. Now he's not mentioned, but you read the word us. Throughout the book of Acts, it seems that at times Luke was with Paul and sometimes he was not. And you find the discourse changed, the wording changed. Sometimes they did this, sometimes it says us, we did this. And so Luke here is included in that. And so it indicates to us that at times Luke traveled with Paul. Luke, I think, was because he was a physician, he was a great personal help to Paul. No doubt also a great spiritual encourager uh, to Paul. So these are Paul's allies. And you say, all right, how do you summarize allies in the work of God? Two words, servants and faithful. Faithful servants. That's it. That's what these men were. Faithful servant. Uh, but the pastor, how, how did they preach? Did they teach? What, what did they do? I don't know. I don't know what they did. Some of them we do. Timothy, we know what he did. But a lot of these men we don't. But we do know those two things. They served God and they were faithful. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. The greatest quality you can have in service to God is faithfulness. But yet it seems to be the great thing that's lacking. Something happens, can't be faithful anymore. You see, so in the work, there are both dissenters and disciples. In the work, there are both adversaries and allies. But I want to make one more point here from Acts 20, and that is this, that in this work, there is both encouragement and burdens. Now, notice Acts chapter 20. Notice verse 5. Now, I'm getting this point from the Scriptures. I didn't just came up with it. I typically don't come up with points unless they come from the Bible. But notice verse 5. Give me some time to explain it, all right? These, all the men that are listed with Paul, going before, tarried for us at Troas. Paul, Troas would be the port city of Asia Minor, where they would sail from a Troas over to Macedonia. He did that on the second missionary journey. So Paul would leave these believers to minister in Troas for them. They would go to Macedonia and then come back to Troas. Now, it's interesting here what happens in Troas. We're going to read then later in Acts chapter 20. This is our next study next week of uh, Paul preaching till midnight. Amen. Praise the Lord. I look forward to that next week. But he was in Troas. The man fell out of the window. He died and he was raised from the dead. It's an exciting story. We'll go there next week. But here, uh, something's going to happen in Troas. And what we find in Troas is that in this work, there's going to be both encouragement and burdens. When Paul left Ephesus, here in Acts 20, he would have logically went to Troas to board a ship sailing to Macedonia. He had done so in his second missionary journey back in Acts chapter 16. When he arrived in Troas, he decided to stay longer than anticipated. And the question is here is, why stay in Troas? Not much is said here in Acts 20, but we find an explanation in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. All right, so what happened in Troas? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, notice with me, and um, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. So notice here, Paul was just planning on going to Troas so he could sell over to Macedonia. But evidently, he stayed there longer. Why? Because a door was open. Verse uh, 13. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. So here's what happened. I believe that Titus was a man who was sent, like Timotheus and Erastus, to check on the believers at Corinth. And so when Paul was in Troas, he was waiting to hear from Titus about how the church at Corinth had been doing how they had received the letter. And so Paul says, when I was in Troas, God opened the door. It was an encouragement because I didn't plan on staying there, but evidently the door was open. But then there was a conflict because while I was there, I did not hear from Titus about you. And I I really became troubled. He says, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now hold your place there and go to chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Notice with me in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Now remember he had said that back in chapter 2. But we were troubled on every side, without uh, were without fightings, without were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So there it is. So he was troubled, why? Because he didn't hear from Titus at first. And so he said, well, I need to go check on them because I haven't heard about how they're doing in Corinth. Titus should have given me a report. But then he says, but actually we came across Titus. And we were comforted. Verse 7. And not by His coming only, but by the consolation wherewith He was comforted in you when He told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. So this is what I think happened here if we put those things together. Paul sent Timotheus and Erastus with the letter to deliver it to the church of Corinth. The first letter, it was a scathing letter. Timothy, somewhere along the line, was probably sent to check on how was the letter received. And Paul hadn't heard. Well, it was a stern rebuke, 1 Corinthians was. So he didn't know how that letter would be received. Have you ever felt that way? If you have to confront somebody with the truth that they might not like it, but you still must deliver them, you're wondering how they're going to respond? Well, he was wondering. He was troubled And so what we see here in the work of God, there is both, look, he is in Troas, there's an open door, God's opening the door. Wonderful, encouragement from God. But at the same time, he's thinking about those believers in Corinth, he is burdened for them. That's two aspects of the work of God. The point I'm trying to make here is, is when you read Acts 20, you see here that in this work, there are going to be dissenters and disciples. Focus on the disciples. In this work, there will be both adversaries and allies. Focus on the allies. In this work, there will be both encouragement and burdens. And for Paul, when we read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, they came at the same time. Rejoicing that God opened the door but burdened because he didn't know what the response was of the believers in Corinth. I want you to turn with me and we'll finish here in Philippians chapter 4. Now remember, when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he is imprisoned. When he was at Philippi, he was imprisoned unjustly. So the believers know a little bit about persecution in, in Philippi and Evidently, the church at Philippi had sent to take care of Paul, uh, his financial needs. And he thanks them for that here in Philippians chapter 4. But notice verse 10. Paul says something about the ministry that I think will help us. He says this, Philippians 4.10. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I want you to think about those words. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Notice verse 12. I know both how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now think about verse 12 here. He says, I've learned, notice I've done both. Everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and hungry. Well, how can you be both? Well, I think he's not talking about, right, he's not talking about the physical aspect that he is, physically hungry, and at the same time he's full. That doesn't work. You know what happens at Thanksgiving. You're not both full and hungry after you eat. You're just full. (laughs) You can't be both. But what is he talking about? I think he's talking about in the ministry. He has learned whatever happened in the ministry, he learned both to be full and to be hungry. To deal with struggles in his life, but also to deal with encouragement. To deal with burdens, but to deal with strength. Uh, uh, to, uh, um, To deal with encouragement and to deal with burdens to deal with adversaries and allies and not focus on the adversaries. He learned to do both. He says, uh, uh, and both to abound and to suffer need. Well, if you're abounding, you don't have need. Well, the truth is in the ministry, we often have to deal with both and sometimes they come at the same time. We get encouraged and strengthened by someone and we get discouraged by somebody else or by something else. And Paul says, I have learned to do and to be both. So what, do we, uh, what must we learn as we work the work of the Lord? We must learn in whatsoever state we are to be content. To be content. Do you notice what he says in verse 13? He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. There's the key. I can do it through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Uh, You see, we have to learn. He says, I've learned this is what has happened in my life because how can I be content when I see dissenters? Well, there's disciples too. How can I be content when I see all the adversaries everywhere? Well, I look at the allies that I have. Uh, But but, but what if there are, look at those burdens, the, the care of the churches and all the things that I deal with. Well, look at the hand of God and how He has opened doors. See, whatever state I am, I'm going to learn to be content. Now, what is the opposite of contentment? It's one word. It starts with a C. It's covetousness. Now, I know it may seem strange to talk about the work of God and covetousness, but I think it goes hand in hand. Do you not think that Paul wanted all the people in Ephesus to be saved when he preached to them? Of course he did. On his missionary journeys, he wanted to see everybody be saved. He wanted to see people come to knowledge of the truth. He says that uh, the, 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 the time of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so wherever Paul went, he preached the gospel faithfully, but then he saw those who rejected the gospel. And so maybe when it came to the ministry, Paul had some expectations. He thought to himself, well, if we could just reach the whole city or if we could reach this state, if could, we could just eliminate the opposition, could it be that that involves a little bit of covetousness? I want what I want out of ministry, not what God gives in ministry. I want this result. I want this blessing. Not the blessing that God gives me. That is covetousness. It is us not learning to be content with what we have. In whatsoever state I am, I have learned to be content. Let me ask you this. Have you learned to be content? See, the enemy of contentment is unfulfilled expectation. And often unfulfilled expectations are rooted in covetousness. We are okay with serving God if God brings what we want to pass. And the moment that we are disappointed, that's it, we quit. No, we need to learn, know how to be abased, And at the same time, we need to learn how to abound. We need to know how to be full and how to be hungry. We need to know how to abound and how to suffer loss. And whatever happens in our lives with Christ, we can do it. What is that? That's faith. Trusting in the Lord. And so as we read in Acts, Timothy is said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, He worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. So we think about Paul. Paul said that about Timothy. Paul is not Timothy, he's a different man. But nonetheless, Paul says, I look at him, I look at Timothy... And I say, he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. And I hope that we can say today as well, or that the Lord could say of us, he worketh the work of the Lord, as also Paul did, as also Timothy did. And so that means that if we're going to be doing the work of the Lord, we have to be found faithful even when there are dissenters, even when there are adversaries, and even when there are burdens. Why? Because we must turn our attention on the disciples, the allies, and the encouragement that we get from God. God's blessing in ministry is not the absence of dissenters and adversaries and burdens. But rather it is continuing with a focus on the disciples and the allies and the encouragement that God provides for us as we serve Him. You know, we by nature, even the most optimistic person, when things turn awry and things go bad, we focus on that. That's just the flesh. We like to look at the negative and that's what we focus on. And what we think at that moment is, if only God could get rid of the negative... And we don't realize at that moment that God has provided something to encourage us along with it. Along with it. And so we have to learn to deal with both in our Christian life.